Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now, sending down your Holy Spirit, enlightening our intellect and raising up our minds as we encounter you in this deep way led by Pope Benedict to encounter you and that we might be raised up to glorify your holy name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the mm-hmm. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good to see you, Father. And as Father said, we're in this new year. We are making a new start in this epiphany tide. If you think back to, to the beginning of this volume where we started, we talked about the baptism. Jesus went out into the Jordan Valley, and it was here that the Father revealed his true identity. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Now, why did Jesus come? Pope Benedict wrote these three volumes because he thought that there was one thing necessary that Jesus brought us. Jesus himself describes it that way in Luke's gospel, right? There is one thing necessary. Um, And Pope Benedict wanted to highlight this one thing for us because he said this in numerous ways, even in the infancy narratives, but also a couple of times in this volume. If you have this one thing, then everything will go well. If you do not have this one thing, it doesn't matter what you do, you will be lacking everything will be amiss because the center is not there. If we look, this is starting at the bottom of page 136. Benedict talks about this in the context of the Our Father. This means that the gift of God is God himself. The good things that he gives us are himself. This reveals in a surprising way, what prayer is really all about. It is not about this or that, but about God's desire to offer us the gift of himself. That is the gift of all gifts, the one thing necessary. Prayer is a way of gradually purifying and correcting our wishes and of slowly coming to realize what we really need. God and his spirit. What's, what's missing there? Jesus is teaching us to pray the Our Father. 
And in the midst of this, Benedict reflects on how he points us to God and his spirit. What about the son? Well, what we see throughout this volume is that the mission of Jesus is to bring us to the father. He doesn't do that by simply telling us about the father. He doesn't do that by simply praying on our behalf. He doesn't even do that merely by saving us. You could imagine, for instance, he could say, well, I'm going to offer a sacrifice for their sins. Okay, you're forgiven now. Go about your business. You're forgiven. No, that is not enough. On page 138, so this is just a couple of pages. Well, really the next page after where I left off, we see what this is all about. This is the third paragraph here. This gives the concept of being God's children a dynamic quality. We are not ready-made children of God from the start, but we are meant to become so increasingly by growing more and more deeply in communion with Jesus. Our sonship turns out to be identical with following Christ. To name God as Father thus becomes a summons to us, right? It's an invitation to live as a child, as a son or daughter. It's not enough to teach us, to pray for us, or even to save us. Who is Jesus? Jesus is son. What did Jesus come to do? To give that sonship to us. And this is important because Jesus doesn't just give us some things, right? In that first quote we read about, you know, gifts. Jesus didn't come just to give us some nice gifts. He came to give us the gift, everything that he had. What does he have that he didn't give us? He poured it all out upon us in the Holy Spirit. You think back to the baptism, right? What happens to Jesus at the baptism, right? He's manifested as the Christ, the anointed one. What is he anointed with? Not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. And to jump ahead, you know, we're going to talk about John's gospel in our next session, but Jesus says something really startling in the Last Supper discourse of John's gospel. It is better for you that I go, because if I go, I will send you the advocate. And so we can see that Jesus is actually pouring out his spirit upon us so that we can become Christ's, that we can be anointed with his Holy Spirit. And the spirit is going to bring us into the life of the father, right? So Jesus opens up the way, right? He says, I, in the same place in John's gospel, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And so he opens up the door. And in fact, he says that he is the door. So he is this gate, this entryway into the life of the father. The spirit is the, the dynamism, the power that moves us through that gate. And so Jesus is the great mediator. You know, we're over here, right? We, we are lost. We are actually not born children of God, right? God is our creator. To pray our father is a gift. We are adopted as children of God, sharing in the sonship of the son. 
that is what Jesus had to do. Now, in, in order for us to enter into that sonship, he had to teach us, pray for us, save us, right? Those were all necessary actions, but for what? So that we could live the one thing necessary without which life ultimately will be without meaning. We will not reach our, what the Greeks call our telos, right? We will not reach our goal, our true destination without receiving as a gift the one thing necessary. And this should be humbling to us. We can't do it. We on our own cannot realize the meaning and purpose of our own lives. Our lives were a gift to begin with, right? None of us chose to be born. We received our life as a gift. Everything that we have has been given to us. But the most important thing that we have has also been given as a gift. Even greater than our own lives is the gift of sonship. Why is that even greater than existence, right? And, and many of the church fathers said this, right? Our rebirth is greater than our birth because our rebirth is into the life of the Trinity. That is what it's all about. To love the Father through Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. That is why we exist. And I, I put up here at the beginning of our study guide that, that Pope Benedict, I, I just feel this, right? He's, he's in his element here, right? He's not a scripture scholar, although he, you know, scripture is at the center of his theology. You'd say that, right? But he's more of a systematic theologian, what we call dogmatic theologian, teaching dogma, also a fundamental theologian. He taught about the nature of faith and belief. And so he's writing this commentary on the gospels for a purpose. And the purpose is so that we can realize what this one, one thing necessary is, right? And advance towards it. The reason why I feel that Benedict is in his element in these chapters is because as his life progressed, he realized that the way that we experience the one thing necessary is through the liturgy. Um, and that's why his major work before writing this was the spirit of the liturgy, because he realized that God had become eclipsed, certainly become eclipsed in the modern world, that the enlightenment was actually an, an darkening, right? that the world had become dark because we had put man at the center. The enlightenment was essentially saying, we can do it. We can realize the goal of our existence. We can create prosperity and health. We can create peace on earth, right? These things that Jesus actually offers us, right? As the Prince of Peace, we can do that. And, and when you read figures like Francis Bacon or even Descartes, they say, and we can even overcome death. And you see that behind a lot of the projects of, of modern science, we can even overcome death we can cre create eternal life for ourselves. And as a prophet, Benedict realized the problem with this, that this turning away from God did indeed begin to make things dark. He grew up in Nazi Germany. He saw the effects of that. And this was pretty bold. As a German Pope in Auschwitz, he said, what happened here? is that the Nazis wanted to kill God, 
right? In a way, Nietzsche was their great prophet, right? God is dead. And in order to enact what they believed about the death of God, it was necessary to destroy God's people, to destroy any evidence of him. And of course, they wanted to kill Christians. Any Anyone who would adhere to God before the ideology had to be eliminated. And so the 20th century, which was seen as, as an age of great technological progress, of course, it's actually a, a dark time in many ways. The two great world wars, the Cold War, you look dur even during the Cold War, you know, the, the mass murders that happened in communist China and Cambodia and other places. Humanity had never seen the kind of atrocities that happened in the 20th century ever before. Right? We can we can point to bad moments, certainly. It's not like nothing bad ever happened to the 20th century, but the 20th century experienced a great spiritual darkness like no other time had. Benedict realized that both the problem and the solution, the one thing necessary. And he came to the startling conclusion that God was even being eclipsed in the church. That there was a crisis of faith in the church. There was a crisis of the liturgy, that the transcendence of God, that the primacy of God, and you can see he uses that term in our reading today, the primacy of God was not being respected. He uses that term even to describe what the kingdom of God means. The kingdom of God means the primacy of God, that we put God first. We put him before everything else. If you put yourself first, well, you're saying that I am the one thing necessary. And therefore the Our Father itself is not only a way of praying, right? Because prayer is not only prayer, right? There's something deeper here in the reality of prayer. It is a complete ordering of life. And so in a way, the Our Father unveils the mission of Jesus, not simply to teach us about something, but to enact something. Benedict even mentions a couple of times that the, the mission of Jesus, the unveiling of the Father is an event, and so we can think of the Our Father as more than a formula. It's an unfolding of a reality. What's the reality? You can now call God Father. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't say, now pray this, my Father. He actually says my Father often throughout the Gospels. That's how he speaks of the Father, my Father. Right, And he is the only natural born son of the father. We are adopted children of the father. The father has one only begotten son. We are adopted children. But merely by saying our father, he is saying, pray with me. Because you are following me, because you are my disciples, you can now say our father. That in and of itself is an open door into heaven. Jesus is that open door, right? He's not saying, over there is an open door. He's saying, come, follow me. Here is the door. This is the path to the Father. And so simply saying, pray this, there is a revolution in history, right? 
when our first parents left the garden, they were saying, my way. And now God is coming to us, right? In, in a way, we could say that the, the whole parable of the prodigal son, which Benedict rightly calls the parable of the two sons. Why is that right? We know for 100% that's the right title because the parable begins, there were two sons, right? <laughs> but the whole purpose of that parable in a way is to show that we have departed from the father. Our first parents departed from the father. And insofar as we have sinned, and Paul says it that way in Romans, right? Insofar as we have sinned, right? We are in Adam, right? We, we have followed that path of my way. I am the one thing necessary, right? We, we, we've done that. We've walked that path. And the point of the prodigal son is to say that the father has gone out of his house. He has come out to look for you. He is waiting for you to come back to him. But how will you come back to him? Does he simply say, boy, I, I really hope that my children, well, he, he adopts us in Jesus, right? But nonetheless, my, my creatures, right? <laughs> that they will come back to me. No, that's, that's, that's not enough, actually. This looking out from the father's house for his lost son goes farther than that because he sends his only begotten son into the world. And Benedict, the, the way that he unpacks the parables is actually amazing because he says that, what, what, what did the Enlightenment biblical interpreters say? Well, J Jesus was a great moral teacher, right? He, he wanted to make these great moral lessons, almost like Aesop's fable. You know, all, all of the parables have these great moral lessons. Benedict says, sure, but you, you kind of missed the whole point here. The parables are all about the son being sent into the vineyard, right? The, the tenants are, are not caring for the vineyard. And so the father says, well, I will send my own son, right? This is his looking out from his house, right? Waiting for his son to return. He sends the only begotten son out to enable us to come back to him. That's the only way that it can happen. We can't do it. Right? There's an infinite divide between us and the Father. And how can, you, how can a finite creature overcome an infinite divide? It's not possible. And so the Father reaches out, and, and Benedict uses this imagery right, with his two hands. And we see in, in, in the prodigal son right, that there is this embrace, this reaching out towards the prodigal son. What are the two hands of the Father? The Son and the Spirit. Right? No one can come to the Father unless he draws him, is what Jesus says. Right? And, and how, how does he draw us? By sending the Son, who in turn breathes the Spirit upon us. And, and, and I've harped on this, but I, I'll continue to harp on it. That's fine. You're right. You know, here's Benedict as Pope, and he's going to write these books because he thinks that this is the one thing necessary. Like, okay, church, world. There's, there's really only one thing you need to know. I've been a faithful son of the church my whole life. And this is what I see is needed. The thing that is always needed, but it's really needed. <laughs> it's really, really needed. And even more so than other times in history, people have turned their backs on the father again. 
And with all of our progress and advancement, the world is actually becoming darker because we think we can do things without God. We think we do not need that one thing that is necessary. And so the Our Father is an event, to use Benedict's language, because it not only enables us to call upon the Father, which that should make you tremble, right? To say, Our Father, if we really understood what that means and the power of that prayer, we would tremble. But the church fathers have always said that in praying this prayer, we become rightly directed, rightly ordered to the Father. How, how does Benedict describe this? Well, he said that the prayer itself is almost like the Decalogue. What's the Decalogue? That means the 10 words, the 10 commandments. The, the first tablet of the 10 commandments was the first three commands about honoring God. The second tablet of the Decalogue um, was about neighbor, honor your father and mother, and then the thou shall nots, right, about your neighbor. Don't even think anything bad about harming your neighbor. And the Our Father is structured that way as well. God first, right? If you're not rightly ordered towards God, you can't be rightly ordered within yourself or to anyone else. And so the first three petitions, right, you could say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? So we have the three thys at the beginning. The first thing that I want is you. I want, I, I want you and I want everything in my life to be rightly ordered towards you. That's how you have to begin. Because if you start me, well, you're already on the wrong foot, right? Because you're, you're putting yourself forward. And the one thing necessary, right, is right ordering to God. Seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added onto you. That's, that's actually right in the same section where Jesus gives the Our Father in Matthew's gospel. Seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added onto you. But if you don't seek the kingdom first, everything else will be taken away, at least at the end, if not before, because of our disorder. Then we have give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? So you have the three thys and the four we's, Benedict says, right? Where we pray for us, not for me. Even here, it's not me, right? The, the whole problem at the beginning was me, me, me. That's still the problem today. Me, 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 you know, it's like, no. Thy, right? Thy kingdom, thy will. And then after that, then it's we, not me. I do not even have my own bread. <laughs> Our reading from this last uh, Sunday, the gospel, no, it was not the gospel. I'm, I apologize. The second reading said, your body is not your own, right? It was Paul talking. Do you, do you not know that your body is a temple of, of the Holy Spirit? And it is not your own because you belong to God. And we say, well, well wait a second. My life doesn't even belong to me. Well, what did Jesus say? This is the son of God. He said, you know, the words that I say are not my own, my father. Everything that I do is the will of the father. Who is Jesus? He is essentially son. Everything he thinks, everything he does, everything he says 
it's all as son. It's all received from the father and it's all ordered to the father. And if you are a Christian, you, that you have this anointing in the spirit, you have this adoption as son, then that has to be your life. Everything I have is received from the father and it's ordered back to the father. Give us this day, our daily bread. Your body's not your own. Well, neither is your bread. I mean, if your body's not your own, how could you say that your bread is your own? It isn't. Forgive us our trespasses. And, you know, one of the things that I think most startled me, and I'd like to ask you this question as well. We could even start here in our discussion. The thing that startled me most in the commentary on the Our Father coming back to it now was where he said, here as well, you don't know what you're asking. Forgive us our trespasses. What's the cost of that? What's the price of your trespasses? It's the blood of the son. You can't make up for your trespasses. It's impossible that you have sinned against the eternal God. There's nothing you can do except receive the mercy of God in the son. And this prayer is actually conditional. It's the only conditional prayer of the, our father, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so God has paid this infinite price of forgiving your trespasses with the blood of his son. And he will offer you that mercy freely if you offer it to others. And there is a parable about that, right? Um, the, and Benedict does, uh, he doesn't, you know, sit on this parable, but he does spend a little bit of time talking about that, right? You know, that, that you have the servant who owes this ridiculous sum that, that literally is unpayable to his master. The master forgives the debt. And what does he do? He then goes and insists that someone underneath him, right, pay back just, just a, a small portion of that sum. And when he refuses, he has the man sent into prison. That is this petition of the Our Father in parable form, right? And so he then himself is thrown into prison. So this petition has a condition. That's, that's pretty amazing in itself. And lead us not into temptation. This is an important one because a lot of people today are rejecting this petition. The entire nations of Italy, France, and Germany have rejected this petition in the church. They changed it to, do not let us fall into temptation. Now, what's the difference here? If you say, do not let us fall into temptation, you're putting the emphasis on us. If you say, lead us not into temptation, you are recognizing, well, God's the one who is in charge. How did the serpent get into the garden? He was permitted to enter the garden. The devil doesn't do anything without the Lord's permission. He can't because he himself is only a servant. He's a wicked servant, but he is a servant. He is on a leash, right? When Job is tested, then Benedict really unpacks, you know, the example of Job here. Satan is permitted to test Job. And so it is the father, not who tempts us, right? And so... Pope Francis has, has emphasized that, right? The father's not a tempter. True. No, no one said that he was, right? You know, But he is the one who permits us to be tested for a good reason. What happens immediately 
after Jesus is baptized, he is driven out into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted. It's essential. It's necessary even. And if it wasn't, we'd say, well, well, why is it happening? Right. You know, God knows what he's doing. He does allow you to be tempted. He does allow you to be tested, but he also gives you the help that you need. And, you know, people like to, you know, to quote Paul on this, right? You know, you will not be tempted beyond your strength. But, but when you read that passage in, in context, what that means is God will not allow you to be tested beyond the strength that he provides. Because we will be devoured by the lion of the enemy if we try to stand up to him on our own. And so we're essentially in this petition, lead us not into temptation. We are saying, Father, we need the help that you will give us. We need you not to allow us to be tested beyond the strength that you will provide. It's, it's a great prayer of trust, but deliver us from evil, which gives the completion of the prayer. And in a, in a way, uh, Benedict says, there's nothing more to ask at this point, right? Because you've been directed to the father. You've asked that your needs be provided for both immediate needs um, and bigger ones in terms of salvation that, that, you, that your sins be forgiven. Deliver us not, in, uh, um, but deliver us from evil, sorry. It could be translated, deliver us from the evil one. It's essentially saying, keep us protected under the shelter of your wings, right? Help us to truly live within the kingdom. Do not allow any storm to overtake us. I want to go back though in, in this prayer to daily bread. You know, it's not actually daily bread. That's not what the word means. Give us today. It literally means our super substantial bread. Epiousiasis, the Greek, doesn't mean daily. And Jerome translated it twice, right? Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel. It's the same word in both gospels. It's a very unique word. There's only one other example found in the ancient world, but it's 400 years after the Our Father, as Benedict mentions. Um, and this super substantial bread, I mean, Benedict, I'm sorry, Benedict, Jerome translated it that way in one of his gospels, super substantial in Latin. And then he translated it daily in the other, and that's the one that we've accepted into the liturgy. Super substantial could mean, you know, more than we need to live. Benedict said, you know, what we need to live, but it's almost like more than we need to live. It's been translated as tomorrow's bread, which is interesting because we say, give us today our daily bread, but like today's bread almost, but it actually has a connotation more towards the future, right? More than we need. Get, give us this kind of this overflowing abundance, you know. But the church fathers, and, and it's interesting that Benedict even says it's unanimous, right? That, that they were in complete agreement that it actually means the Eucharist. That Jesus literally was telling us to pray for the one thing necessary, right? You know, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the Father. And he's essentially saying, pray for that kind of food. And I will give you that food when you eat my flesh. My will, my food, Jesus says, is to do the will of the Father. How can we eat of that same food? It's through the Eucharist. The Eucharist is Trinitarian, that we say we receive the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Son. The bread becomes the substance of the body, 
but you can't separate the body from the whole Christ. And so when you receive the body, you receive the body, blood, soul, right? That's all the, the complete humanity of Christ, but also his divinity. The divinity of the son is the divinity of the father, right? They don't have separate divinities. They're one God. And so when you receive the Eucharist, you are being drawn to the father and the Holy Spirit through the gift of the son. The Eucharist unpacks the complete mission of the son to make us one with him. We become one flesh with him so that we can become one spirit with him, that we too can belong completely to the father. That's the mission of the son, that we be one with the father as he is one with the father. You see this, you know, well, anyway, I'm looking ahead to our next session again, but Jesus spells this out in the Last Supper discourse of John's gospel, but, but more on that later. So I wanted to then at least hit on one key aspect of the parables, and we, and we can discuss them farther. There's that baffling line that Jesus says to his disciples, and it's, it's a quote from the book of Isaiah. This is on page 189 of the text. Let's just start at the top of the page on 189. You know, when when the the disciples ask him why he teaches in parables, right? This is what he says. At, at the heart of Jesus' answer is a citation from Isaiah 6, 9, which the synoptics transmit in different versions. Mark's text reads as follows in Jeremiah's painstakingly argued translation. So you might not find this translation, right? To you the circle of disciples, has God given the secret of the kingdom of God? But to those who are without, everything is obscure in order that they, as it is written, may see and yet not see, may hear and yet not understand, unless they turn and God will forgive them. And you might think, you know, and, and the thought, has occurred to me, especially in the past from time to time before really digging into this more deeply, like why would Jesus spend so much time teaching if the people seemingly are not even supposed to understand? Is Jesus just kind of being a bad teacher? You know, everybody would point to the, ex the example of the parables and say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. Look, look how awesome the parables are. They all, they all have this great, you know, moral message or whatever. And Benedict says, no, the, this is the, the, the key mystery of the son. And, and I love how he uses John's gospel. This is this time right before the last supper. Benedict uses John's gospel to explain this. Let's think of the parable of the sower, right? The seed is scattered. What does Jesus say to the Greeks actually, right? So he gives this message to Andrew to give to the Greeks. Unless a grain of wheat fall to the earth and dies, right? It remains but single seed, right? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies. Benedict says that's what the parables are about. The word is being presented to the crowds in order to die. The word is actually, in, in a way, being crucified in the teaching itself. It, it's part of the mission of the Son, the mission of the son, once again, was, was not to simply be this great teacher. I'm going to tell you all the secrets 
of human history that nobody has ever gotten before. I've come from heaven. I'm going to teach it all to you. No, that's not what he did. I've come to bring you the father. And the teaching reveals that because the teaching is actually all about the kingdom appearing. And Benedict says, and being rejected. He says that the closer you get to the passion, the more explicit it is. And I, and I even referred to the parable of the son being sent into the vineyard. That, that parable is from Holy Week. But if you look at the, the whole arc of the parables, that is what they are. And he gives the example of the rich man and Lazarus. And he makes a great connection here in, in this regard. Is that the rich man goes to, you know, what does he say? It's not even necessarily hell, but to this place of the dead. It's kind of like limbo, Hades, you know, whatever. Sheol in the, in the, in the Hebrew, right? This place of the dead. And the rich man prays to Father Abraham that he would send Lazarus back from the dead. And Abraham says, well, they won't believe even if one is sent back from the dead. And, you know, I think our minds, for good reason, go right to Jesus and the resurrection. But Benedict says, well, wait a second. I mean, Jesus knew what he was doing in giving the poor man the name Lazarus, right? The rich man, we call him Dives. That just means rich man in Latin, right? You know, so... The rich man doesn't have a name. The poor man has a name. Why would he have that name? Oh, well, well, maybe Benedict says it's because Jesus did send someone back from the dead named Lazarus. But what happened in that? Did, did everyone believe? No, I mean, the people who were there believed, right? And, and so there were some people who believed through that miracle. But actually in John's gospel, that is the trigger that leads to the death of the son. That is when the Sanhedrin meets and they say, we need to do something about this problem. And they plot to put Jesus to death imminently, right? And, and they do, of course. And Judas will come and, and provide them the opportunity to arrest him. But that is it there. That is the way ultimately in which Jesus will bring about the gift of adoption. Not in his teaching, not in his prayer for us, but it is in this work of salvation that he will win for us the grace of adoption so that we can enter into his life. And it is, you know, through his human life, right? We are made members of the body. That didn't say much about the, the disciples, that chapter, but what we see here in, in this calling of the disciples is that they become the body of Christ so that this whole process of the body of Christ being given for the life of the world will continue. Where's Jesus now? Well, he is on earth, right? His body is here. His body is here in the Eucharist, but when you consume the Eucharist, you become one flesh with him. And then you are drawn up into the gift of the son for the life of the world. You're participating in that. What do we see in, in the work of the disciples? They preach the kingdom and they bring healing. They, they exorcise the world. And Benedict says, I, I have this quoted on these 
third page of the study guide. This is from page 174 of the book. If you don't have the study guide handy. To exercise the world, to establish it in the light of the ratio, we actually say the logos, reason, that comes from eternal creative reason and its saving goodness and refers back to it, that is the permanent central task of the messengers of Jesus Christ. To exercise the world by establishing in it the logos that we are establishing Christ in the world. And that brings freedom in the world. It exercises the world. And it's the same with the healings that follow from that. The physical healings are not the aim. Jesus didn't come and say, bring me every sick person in the world because I'm going to physically heal them. The physical healings were a sign of reconciliation. This is just a couple of pages later on 176. Only becoming one with God can be the true process of man's healing. And that's what it means to be a disciple, to be one with God through Jesus. To the point that we become Jesus in the world. If we look even back in the teaching on the Our Father, and I'll end with this and we can get some discussion going. This is on page 132. We see this happening, like our conformity with Christ to the point of identity with Christ. So this is towards the bottom of the, the first page of the study guide or page 132, if you want to look it up directly in the text. Jesus thereby involves us in his own prayer. He leads us into the interior dialogue of triune love. He draws us, he draws our human hardships deep into God's heart, as it were. How does Jesus bring us to the one thing necessary? He doesn't point us to the way. He doesn't teach us about the way. He doesn't just accomplish it on our behalf. He draws us into himself so that we do it with him, that we hear the words of the Father within and through him, that we pray to the Father within and through him, and that we are saved by becoming sons within and through him. That is our identity forever, to be sons in the Son. That is what Jesus came to do. That is the one thing necessary that Pope Benedict wants us in the church right now to focus on. That's why he's writing this book. And so that if, if we in the church will focus on this conformity to Christ, well, then we can call the world to that same conformity as the disciples, making the body of Christ present in the world to sanctify, to transform, and to save it. So let's start. We'll, we'll start with one question for discussion, and then we'll, we'll kind of open it up more broadly than that. But look at the end here. I had just a couple of, of final questions. I want to look at that last one. There, there is this interplay throughout and this tension between me and we, right, that I, that I referred to earlier, that Jesus is trying to help us to understand our identity in him as a we. That is, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That conformity I have with Christ gives me conformity to the other members of his body. 
I want to just see if anybody has any particular thoughts on that, because he, he really hit that hard in the, this teaching on the, our father, but you see it also in the chapter on the disciples, because he says that this is what it means to be. We, right. We see this in the, in the in gathering, what does the word church mean? The, the, the kind of the in gathering, the assembly, the calling together, right. Of the disciples. That is what the church is. And that gives us this corporate identity as, as members of the body. Does anybody else really kind of pick up on that and have any insights on this moving beyond myself into this understanding of we and are versus me and mine. Yeah. James, Just go ahead. The whole idea, Jesus came and turned the, or the Christians later on came and turned the world upside down. They took me and made it. We, um, the idea of, what had what did we lose in the garden? We lost the holiness of God. We lost that likeness of God, but we maintained the image of God. We still carried that image of God in us. We still carried that glory of God in us. We forgot that. Jesus reminded us that we are the sons of God now. That glory of God in me is that glory of God in you. We are the glory of God. It went from me turning the world upside down to we, the glory of God, to restore ourselves to the holiness of God. That's where we're going. That's our journey to be reunited with God so that we're now whole instead of piecemeal partial, incomplete. That's amazing because as you were saying that, it, it just struck me like a reality even of this question that you unfolded here. God is not a simple me, right? God is we. And if you and if you want to participate in the glory of God that you are that you are describing there, well then we need to really become this enter into this communion as well. Uh, Maria, go ahead. I think for me, um, when I think about what he means by community, it, it to me it's like I, I was at mass uh, this sun this Sunday. I was in a I was at a conference, so I wasn't in my home city. I was in a different place, and for me, it's about looking around and thinking about who is not there and why are they not there? Where are our you know missing you know sisters and brothers and you know where are the young people or where are you know, the community is way more diverse. And why don't I see that diversity, you know, reflected um, in at mass at the table uh, of the Lord? And so for me, it's really asking that question, who who is missing and how do we get them so, back? Yeah. And I think the conformity to Christ is conformity to his mission. If the church, if the word church even means like this calling together, this assembly, well, that means that's still the mission just like the early disciples. Yeah. And if everyone is not there, it means we're not doing our mission, right? You know, so we, we need to fulfill that, to think beyond ourselves. We're not there just for me. I go, I go to mass. I say this all the time, right? Right. That you do not go to mass for yourself, right? You, you go to mass for God, to, to honor him, right? The primacy of God, as we see in the Our Father, right? It is for the Father that you go to mass. And if you're transformed in your encounter with Christ at the mass, well, then you should be for others like Christ. 
to be that presence to them, to bring them to him. Uh, Doc, can I jump in on, can I jump in on Maria's point? Well, just, I, I, the experience of we, especially at mass, Maria, that you're bringing up, I, I do find that just so difficult to really take seriously because it's just in the air that we breathe right? This individualistic culture. And I, and I, and we totally take it to mass. It's just in and out sometimes, right? I go in and I get what I came for and I leave and it's just, it's, it's difficult, but you have to be intentional about actually saying, okay, wait a minute. You know, am I even experiencing this as a we, or is it just me in and out? Well, that's one of the things that I love about, you know, the text for the Latin mass, because it talks about, you know, all us present here, you know, we're assisting at that mass. It, it is a we. It's not. A, it's not just a me. And so, and even the way that Jesus taught, right? He gathered the twelve around him, and so we see from the very beginning that what did, what did the Son do? Who's in communion with the Father and Spirit, right? He begins the church by establishing communion surrounding him, and it's meant to be a contagious communion, right? Uh, yeah, Joanna, go ahead. Um. Yeah. Thank you, Doctor. Um. So, I was thinking about what you were saying, the me uh, or the we becoming the me starting around the enlightenment with, you know, bacon and whatnot. And of course I'm a Protestant convert. I'm now Catholic, but I was raised Protestant. And so I, I see this all through the, the lens of, well, how did the Protestants see this? Um, and you mentioned that it was the enlightenment, but I, I mean, I think it really goes back a hundred years prior to the, um, to Luther and whatnot, because um, in at least certain, I don't want to paint all of Protestantism with a huge brush, but there is, in many strains of Protestantism, there is such a pride taken in the me relationship with God, just me and God, no one else. I don't need anyone else. I don't need works. I don't need someone else doing stuff for me. Um, if I do, if I do, that's a crutch. And I, I don't have a real faith. And so I guess reading reading Benedict really crystallized something that had sort of been sitting there at the back of my mind about um, how, could, how we Catholics um, acknowledge that we were meant to live in community. And as much as our, it's a relationship with God, it's a we relationship with God. So, um, yeah. You're, you're spot word. on. I mean, you absolutely are. And even, and this has continued, Luther was very much looking to cut through mm-hmm. a lot of the communal elements because um, what did he even say, right? The church is invisible, right? And so you even get rid of the visible elements of the church and the accountability to to the church. Um, and it was personal faith that was emphasized. Oh. And you see that today, my personal Lord and Savior. So yes, yeah, yeah you're, you're spot on there for, for sure. And I would say that, especially in the United States, we do have people throughout the world uh, in the study group, but in the United States, you know, this has been predominantly a Protestant country. And, and I think that often as Catholics in the United States, we do tend to think of even our Catholic faith in individual terms. So it yeah. is something that we really have to to seek to overcome. Oh, if I could just add one more anecdote. I, I remember being told about the frontiersmen, the first frontiersmen and women who went out to, you know, uh, to the Great Plains and the Rockies. Um, 
and they would only have they wouldn't have a pastor with them they wouldn't have the sacraments they only had their bible and themselves and and this is at a, a pretty mainline lutheran church and these people were held up as the exemplars of what a faith should be and um it wasn't again until i became a catholic that i realized how just completely upside down that was and um made me kind of made me sad for lack of a better word they didn't have their daily their true daily bread the super substantial yeah. bread so it it really disembodies the the whole community of disciples mm-hmm. which really does if if it's a if it's an assembly it's a gathering in we gather around the eucharist mm-hmm. that is what unites us as one in the body of christ uh, angie go ahead yeah, so I didn't necessarily take this from this book, but the author was very Benedictine or Benedict in his inspiration. But I was just finishing reading a book and he talked about how he personally didn't even like the use of the word community. He much preferred communion. And that kind of goes back to the uh, what Peter was saying, that how are we living for others? And that because it's only when we're actually living in Christ that we can actually live for others. And so, because you can get community at any fraternal organization anywhere, but it's only in the church where we can truly receive communion. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think communion in versus community, right, is trying to understand it from a deeper theological, but we even say ontological, right? You know, think of John Paul's Theology of the Body talks about the communion of persons and marriage, right? Where the, the two become one flesh, even naturally speaking. Um, and so communion doesn't have to be supernatural, but ultimately even a natural communion should be rightly ordering us towards the communion that is God, right? The communion of the blessed Trinity. And and the communion we have through love on in this earth is a participation in the love of God, right? Genuine a genuine communion of law, which is self-sacrificial, you know, for the true good of the other. Peter, do you have any questions coming in? um, Um, I'm just looking through. Yeah, we've, we've got some good, good stuff just on different topics. So I I wanted to see if we were going in a different direction, but uh, yeah, yeah. Lisa actually related to your point, Joanna, Lisa uh, says that when she was a Protestant, she was taught that the, our father, it was a more of a pattern for prayer than a prayer per se in itself. She asks, how how does Ratzinger see it? Is he lending more credence to this perspective that it's more of a pattern or a type? I'm sorry. Can can you repeat the question again? I I apologize. Oh, I was actually yeah, I was reading something in the chat box. I shouldn't. Have yeah, done yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I have to yeah. say, just as an aside, I am loving the energy in tonight's session. We clearly have been missing the ICC for you know the, the couple of weeks that we've been gone. So this is great. There's so much flying in on every direction. Um, yeah, she said. So Lisa wrote when she was Protestant, she was taught that the Our Father was a more of a pattern for prayer than a prayer per se. Oh, um, yeah. So how does Ratzinger see it? Is is he saying a similar thing here? I mean, I don't think it's one or the other, right? It would be a mistake to say, well, we shouldn't actually pray it. I think some people would say that because they maybe want to avoid formal prayer. And Benedict does address that. Um, as a Benedictine oblate, I was, I was really happy to see that he draws on St. Benedict. This is on page 131, um, where he says, in his rule at the very top, 
St. Benedict coined the formula mens nostra concordat voci nostre. Our mind must be in accord with our voice. Normally, thought precedes word. It seeks and formulates the word. But praying the Psalms and liturgical prayer in general is exactly the other way around. The word, the voice goes ahead of us and our mind must adapt to it. For on our own, we human beings do not know how to pray as we ought. We are too far removed from God. And he goes on to talk about the praying of the Psalms beneath. Why do I mention that here? Because it is in the praying of the Our Father that we learn the dynamics of prayer, that our mind begins to conform to the, the structure of the prayer. But even more than that, he also points out that our desires should be shaped by the prayer. So the praying of the prayer itself has power to teach us to how to pray, how to relate to the Father, how to love the Father and others within the communion of Christ. And from the very beginning, right, you know, as a Catholic, we would say, okay, what did the early community of Christians do in response to this prayer? With the Didache, which many scholars located around the year 60, and that would be before the New Testament was even completely written. Um, they prayed the, the Our Father three times a day, morning, midday, and in the evening. Why? Because this should always be at the top of our minds. And if we say, what, what, it's just a model, right? It's not that we actually pray it. We just kind of pray like that. Well, what's going to happen? You're not going to. Um, and so we need to say the prayer regularly so that it can become the model to teach us how to pray even beyond the prayer. I love uh, I love that that point with that Latin phrase that you quoted, especially related to the liturgy of the hours and praying the Psalms. It's such a beautiful challenge, right? That just shocks us out of our way of thinking about prayer. Uh, yeah, that it's it flips it on its head, kind of like James was saying. Yeah. Um, Lila put into the chat box uh, over here another great point on, on our discussion of, of we, and you just mentioned more formal prayers. She says uh, that it strikes her often, the, the we versus me often strikes her in its use during formal prayers. She says one of the times that it has been hitting her the hardest lately is when praying grace before mm -hmm. and after meals, uh, because even when one eats alone in the physical sense, the sustenance is rightly ordered towards what that person can ultimately offer to the greater we of our community in Christ. I love that point. Yeah, and the, the same is certainly true of the Our Father, right? When, when you are praying the Our Father, you are praying in communion with Christians throughout the world. And, and of course, that's true when we gather to celebrate the Eucharist, that, that this is a prayer that transcends heaven and earth, right? And all those in communion with Christ heaven, earth, and purgatory, right, are united to that sacrifice. Um, Andrew, do you want to jump in here? Yes, uh, I was uh, interested to hear your view. If you consider the Our Father prayer, uh, yes, it's part of the liturgy, part of the, but is it liturgy itself? Could it be even considered liturg liturgical? Uh, second question really is connected. Uh, how will the early Eucharistic celebration, <clears throat> would they have, how early was the Our Father inserted into the Eucharist celebration, the breaking of the bread of the first century Christians? Well, you know, I, I think in terms of being, I mean, the Our Father is a liturgical prayer, right? Because it's prayed at the Mass, 
and it's prayed in the liturgy of the hours. But I think what you're saying is, is it liturgical if I'm praying it in my home? And even if it's not formally, formally liturgical, that is in, in a context of the public prayer of the church, right? The word liturgy means the work that is performed on behalf of the people. And so that it is, it is the prayer of Christ within the community that is formal liturgy. But I, I would say that when we pray the Our Father within the home, this is the domestic church, it's certainly an extension of liturgical prayer. It's united to the prayer of the church. All right, so I think we would say formally it isn't, if I'm just saying it myself, but it, but it certainly is united to the prayer of the church in my intentions. And so by extension, I think we could say that. Uh, and in the second question, well, I think that the Didache quote that I mentioned is the closest thing. It doesn't say that that is confined to the liturgy, um, but you know all of the earliest accounts of the liturgy contain a reference to praying the Our Father. And so we can with confidence say that the Our Father was recited in the liturgy of the early church. Uh, Vanessa? Um, going back to the woman who mentioned praying um, before meals, even when you're on your own, that just reminds me how um, I right now am trying to keep in mind that our guardian angels are always with us. And when we're praying, they're praying with us and they're praying even better than we can. Um, but also going back to the we and me um, in recovery, we're always told the best place to be is in the middle of the flock, not to be on the outskirts, not to be isolated. And even at non-Christian non, um, even agnostic meetings, they'll pray to our father. And the whole point of being in recovery is to give your will over to God and to do God's will, your higher power's will, but God's will. And that's one of the key points in the, our father. And I just think the, we there is really beautiful and powerful. And, and you make a good point, because if, if we were saying me and my, it would be very limited, right? But when you say our, it extends to, yeah, our guardian angels, but to, to the whole communion of the church, angels, saints, all of those in, you know, in, in this life and the next. Peter, Doctor, we have other, other questions. Yeah. yeah, we can switch topics here too. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, Prane, if I'm pronouncing his name right, an uh, in, in Indian Catholic seminarian, he says, um, Welcome, Prane. I think that he might be new to uh, to the ICC. I think I saw him chatting earlier. Um, he asks what what the uh, what the role of the family is here. We're talking about communion. We're talking about mission. Um, it seems like the family ought to be at the at the heart or the center of that. Uh, you know that flow of of our grace into our lives and then out. Does that does that seem right? No, actually, I would say not <laughs> at the center, right? Because uh, and Benedict says this, that, that Jesus essentially establishes a family. And, and he's very clear, right, that those who love father, mother more than me are not worthy of me. And so the reason I say no, right, and I'm going to come back because it's not far from the mark, but um, the, the issue is that this is all about the primacy of God, right? And so God is first. He is my father first and foremost, 
right? And my family, first and foremost, is the com- is the communion of the church. And then flowing from that, right, from the grace of baptism, from the grace of matrimony, which we receive from the church, our family becomes the domestic church. So, I mean, for those who who have a lay vocation, uh, a vocation of marriage in particular, it does become the primary means of living this out on a day-to-day basis, but it's not the point from which the we flows, right? Because that has to be from Christ within the family of the church, which then flows into an extent into my family, right? So I only disagree on on the order there. That's all. Yeah. 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 No, that's great. That's great. Um, another question coming in, we can find the reference here. Page 215, I think is where it came up because you mentioned it earlier and I made a note. Um, this distinction between Hades and Gehenna, could you elaborate a little bit on that? He just briefly mentions that the rich man is in Hades, he says, and not in Gehenna, which is the name of a final of the final state. Right. Right. So, you know, what's an interesting thing is that we often say that Jesus opened heaven. We don't often say that Jesus opened hell, but that is what it's implied here, right? That there was what we call a place of the limbo of the fathers. And that's different from the the limbo that's controversial about those who die with uh, original sin and no actual sin, right? But the limbo of the fathers means that before Christ, that there was a kind of waiting place, and that there were levels within that, right? The bosom of Abraham was the waiting place of the just. And that there were others in torment in this waiting place, such as the rich man. But that this was not Gehenna, because in Gehenna, right, there's even a complete separation from and God and, and others, which the rich man does not seem to have. And so Benedict is essentially saying, that this conversation takes place within what is often called the limbo of the fathers. But as I mentioned, it's just called Sheol in, in Hebrew, this, this place of the dead, this place of awaiting. Um, and that with Christ, right, Christ is the judge. And we see that coming numerous times in the gospel, that judgment has been given to the son by the father. And so our final state will be determined by him. And that means Christ in his humanity, right? Because Christ in his humanity has been seated at the right hand of the Father to be the head of humanity. Um, and that's why the final resting place is not determined before the coming of Christ. Bradley wrote in with an interesting question early on in our session. Uh, I think it it is interesting because we've been talking a lot about prayer and following Christ in patterning our prayer or, or bringing our prayer into conformity with his. Um, Bradley asked how meditative and contemplative prayers fit within the context of this this approach that Pope Benedict is uh, describing here. Yeah, I think what Benedict is trying to do is to help us to meditate on the Gospels. And I, I mentioned before, I think in the first session, that he held that Lexio Divina could bring about a new spiritual springtime in the church. So I would say that these reflections are ordered towards that. If you're asking where it fits into even the teaching on the Our Father, um, I would say that insofar as the Our Father entails a, a kind of reaching out towards the Father, that 
when it engages our mind, we call that meditation, right? But it, when it, it deeply engages our entire being and our soul, you know, we call that contemplation. And that is the goal of prayer. Um, actually, I have a passage um, earmarked uh, in that relation. Um, this is at the very beginning of our reading. So we'll start at the bottom of page 129. The more the depths of our souls are directed towards God, the better we will be able to pray. The more prayer is the foundation that upholds our entire existence, the more we will become men of peace. And it, this drops down to the first, the, the, the first full paragraph on page 130. This is what prayer really is being in silent inward communion with God. It requires nourishment, and that is why we need articulated prayer in words, images, or thoughts, right? And the thoughts would be meditation. The more God is present in us, the more we will really be able to be present to him when we utter the words of our prayers. So I think he clearly sees the necessity, right, of vocal prayer this is the way the catechism orders it, right? Vocal prayer becoming meditation. In meditation, our minds are actively thinking about the mysteries of the faith, which then leads into contemplation, which is this inward union with God. And Benedict talks about just from the, the depth of our being, of our existence, we become united with God. That The catechism says that is prayer, right? There, there are different forms of prayer, but it says contemplative prayer is prayer in the fullest expression. And so the vocal prayer of praying the Our Father should actually lead us into meditation, which leads us then into contemplation. Awesome. Awesome. Georgie, uh, you want to jump in here? You know, in, in the middle of all of this is one of those like little light bulbs that comes up like, whoa, um, that ultimately it's the, Our Father is the... Idonia, I don't know how you say that in English, you know, the, the perfect intercessory prayer. Because in essence, we're praying for our, all our brothers and sisters. It's, he's our father, all of us, the community, and who are the ones who are, for whom he's the father, those who have been coming to salvation and into relation, who've been adopted, and we're praying, not just... And it's funny because we've always thought of it as I'm praying for myself. But then when we look at it in this context, no, we're actually praying for our brothers and sisters in the church. And we're asking, Lord, you know, God, our, our Father, give all of us, not just me, but give all of us our daily bread. Forgive all of us. Lead us not into temptation, all of us. So it's like the, mm -hmm. the ideal, perfect prayer for our brothers and sisters. Absolutely. And one that should inspire us to act upon in the prayer too, I think Benedict is yes. saying. But, but yes, but it is a good point. Yeah. I love that. Uh, we'll we'll wrap up here. We're getting it's getting a, a little late over here on the East Coast, and I'm I'm a little worried. I have to be honest about the snow outside and driving home. Uh, but we'll we, let's get one back, uh, one more question in here from Susan. She just asked if you could explain a little bit more about what you were saying about the parables being the death of the words. That theme that that uh, Pope Benedict was drawing out there. Yes, that Jesus puts the kingdom forth, and that means himself, right? He, he puts himself forward as the word of God, as the seed. The purpose of putting himself forth in this veiled way 
is not necessarily just to teach us all of these great things, right? There, there is, there is teaching in the parable. So it'd be silly to say that there isn't right. When, when you open up the, the prodigal son or, you know, you, or you have the, the good Samaritan, there's a lot of teaching there that you can learn, but at the heart of all of the parables is the mystery of the Paschal mystery that Jesus presents himself in order to be rejected. That is how he saves us. And that's even ultimately how his teaching will take root in the good soil is in the rejection of the word um, that takes place in his ministry. So there, there is a, a kind of irony here, right? That, that Jesus' teaching is actually ordered towards the rejection of his teaching so that his teaching can actually bear fruit in us. Such an incredible point. And I love, I mean, just the layers that, that Pope Benedict is drawing out the, really, the broader, more basic point is, but this is not insightful or anything, but you've been harping on this theme, and he keeps coming back to it, just the, the Christological content of every topic we've been looking at so far. Like the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is about Christ, and then the, the Lord's Prayer. And, and folks, if you've studied scripture, right, you learn that the Psalms are all about Jesus and, and everything pointing towards it. I, I, I love this connection. Uh, there with the parables in looking forward to his ultimate mystery. That's just incredible. Uh, like I said, let's wrap up there. Uh, doctor, could you close us in prayer tonight? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we come before you as members of your body and we th thank you for the great gift of adoption and conformity that we have to you through the gift of grace. Please provide for all of our needs, especially for the one thing that is necessary, our communion with you. Please continue to guide us to live as Christ in the world, to share the word with others, and to be able to enter into the perfect communion that is within your triune life. And together we give all glory to God as we say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, Visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.